Welcome back to Death of the Reader. Herds. What? I... We're discussing Naomi Hirahara's Sayonara Slam. Yeah. The sixth book in the Masurai series, chapters 12 to the end this week, and I... Herds. You sound a little bit lethargic there. You doing okay? You feeling... You feeling pumped? Herds, I'm not mad. Oh no. I'm just disappointed. <gasps> That's like the worst thing I've ever heard you say. <laughs> Now listen. Poor book. Mm. Before 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 we get too far into this, and before anyone goes, okay, it's a bad book. I'm tuning out. Listen, this was a great book. I was so heartwarmed by this entire adventure, as I've said in the previous two weeks. But at the end of last episode, I said, I said that I was afraid that Naomi Hirahara was going to give us a murder mystery sin by having a flimsy motivation, and. The motivation is flimsier than I expected. Well, this this is the fun thing about this book, and it's why I've kind of struggled to, you know, toy with you on the mystery front because yeah. I feel like it's most of it is a, is too obvious, right? The who and the how are far too obvious, but the why, despite being on theme, is not it's it's not entirely foreshadowed properly, like. We know from the broader context of the Masurai series that we're dealing with World War II, that these boats are going to come back and they're going to be important. And like, it's, it's going to be about uh, Japanese American relations. Like that's all fine. Mm-hmm. But the specifics that uh, our, our murderer here is, you know, committing these crimes because they don't want an article published about their family's association with being prisoners of war in which like in a world where, you know, you could just censor their names and still, like, mm-hmm. deliver the report. Like, it feels very strange. Yeah. We're kind of deep diving on this one because we I've got strong feelings, especially as uh, Naomi Hirahara, who has written this this lovely novel, this cozy novel that I adore, uh, and I was especially happy with uh, the, the garden chase. That was a great scene. <laughs> yeah, you saw that coming, eh? <laughs> I know. <laughs> I really wanted good. to mention that because I literally, in my head, I was like, it's going to be a chase through the garden. It's going to be great. <laughs> this poor old man. You have to chase someone through the underbrush. But, like, in, in broad strokes, the the why is foreshadowed, but it doesn't quite feel earned. And to some degree, I'm I'm kind of glad that you had a similar reaction. Yeah. It's because when I got to that point in the novel, you know, I was thinking, have I missed something really obvious? Have I missed some foreshadowing? Am I, am I just stupid? Um, and it seems like that's not the case, which I'm very happy about. I think the problem that arises here is that for a novel that is so thematically strong as this, and for a novel that has such a great series of events leading up to the unveil, it's, one of the great tragedies of storytelling that not sticking the landing for your ending can really just destroy the enthusiasm of even someone who has loved everything that's come before it in the story. And it's one of the reasons that uh, you'll often hear me say that sometimes a, you know, open ending is the best one to have because it takes away some of the weight of the p- potential imperfections of an ending that doesn't land. Yeah. And I think this book is a great example of it because I mean for me like this is such an excellent book for me because I have 
no, I guess, direct connection with the Japanese-American community, but I spent last sure. Christmas with a Japanese-American family who moved over and was a very and were very into sporting culture in California as a Japanese-American family. So this was a really friendly, familiar tale to me. And I, I, I just loved seeing these almost like fan fiction-y retellings of people I actually know in this book. It was it's just such a brilliant, atypical murder mystery experience. Yeah, it's, it's definitely worth having on the show, right? Like, I have no question about that. Just getting to experience this totally different perspective, um, you know, living as as someone who is caught between two cultures in a sense, um, living living in America with this very, uh, very, like, absent heritage, you know, I, I think that's really cool. I also will say I, I love Masurai. He's precious. Yeah, so I love good. that he, like resolves at the end to to finally like pursue his his love interest to the fullest. Um I love that. I love his character arc. Also, I will say I we're going to harp on the ending uh quite a lot this episode, but I I do like that that he didn't get any credit. Like I kind of like that as a nod that the yeah, police absolutely that we had that follow through. You know, I mentioned at the start that the police show up and they say, "Oh, yeah, you're just an old man. Like you have nothing to do with this case." And it's a bit weird that that plot thread is kind of dropped, but the payoff comes right at the very end where they show up and they take down all the details and everything that Mars and Yuki have figured out. Uh, and then they say, oh yeah, we, we, we caught, we caught the murderer, you know, the cops did it. Like, <laughs> cause who's going to believe that this old man was, you know, the one pointing the finger at the end. I mean, you say that as though that they weren't pointing the finger at him, and then the guy that does get accused is the same age and just as retired I mean, as he well, is as well. Fun, that's the fun part, isn't it? Yeah, the, it's it's such a weird. It's it's a very weird. Our our murder culprit is this like poor old man who's like on like heart medication, and he just like mm -hmm. didn't want these like not even horrible family secrets, just these moderately, you know. <laughs> The, I'd, I'd say they're horrible family you secrets, know. but it's not <laughs> their secret that is horrible. It's that they're horrible yeah, things that are family secrets. Listen, exactly. Like it's not like he, you know, murdered someone. Mm. Um, well, I guess he did. Well, I mean, before <laughs> this, it's not like he murdered someone. Yeah, yeah. And the consequence of this, this poor old man, Sonny, like actually receives, is that he he doesn't get to like like lie around like i don't know it's mm -hmm. weird it's it's yeah. weird for me ha having read so many like overly dramatic swashbuckling and intellectual murder mysteries uh this is a very different change of pace yeah where the solution is very human and very down to earth it feels a lot more like tv police procedurals where most of the time is spent on the character development of the main cast and yeah the surrounding mm -hmm. mysteries don't really get a lot of focus so normally if you yeah. watch one of those types of shows you go oh it's the first guy that showed up. He's going to be the culprit. And you get to the end and you're like, ah, oh, there it is. It was totally the same with this. The first guy that we go and interview is Sonny. He lays out all of the reasons he's guilty in the first scene that he's in. And then we just go and have another adventure for the rest of the novel. And I think viewing it through that lens, it's totally fine. Like if you're here for the Maz Arai series to read about Maz Arai, this is a totally fine novel. This novel is worth reading. This novel is thoroughly entertaining um, I don't think you'll regret reading it as long as you go in aware that you're getting into a more 
uh, police procedural main character driven story than a mystery driven story. Let's be clear: a police procedural where we do not follow the police, and in fact, follow an old man who cannot run, cannot fight. Like it's very. Listen, I'd be down know. for a Maserai TV <laughs> miniseries. It sounds. I'd be okay with it. Outrageous. Yeah. I think the other thing that is really fascinating, and maybe this is something that we appreciate more than the average reader herds, rather than struggling under the weight of our uh, normal mystery context, yeah, yeah. is the journalism side to this story is yes. really, really neatly done. With Naomi's experience as a writer for Rafu Shimpo, particularly in some pretty tense times, uh, such as in Los Angeles in the late 90s, you know, she's had experience dealing with some tough topics as a journalist. And I think that the way that the journalistic characters in this story are portrayed is both very authentic and effective. Yeah, Rafu Shimpo is, is known for covering, like, inter-ethnical, uh, eth- like, disagreements and problems in America. Like, that's a, a large part of what they write about. And I, I will say, actually, while we're on the topic, she, she mentions Rafu Shimpo, I think, four times throughout this novel. It's <laughs> uh, <laughs> like a newspaper that Masurai likes to read. I mean, it's a Japanese-American newspaper. It would be. Yeah, I, look, I'm okay with that. Yeah. I'm just saying I respect the hustle. I respect the shameless promotion <laughs> of this newspaper. That's excellent, Naomi. I'm very proud. And I think the, the last thing that I wanted to touch on, Herds, it's kind of, it, it's really important and interesting to look at stories like the ones that Naomi uh, writes because they speak to a, a really significant part of the culture in terms of how we perceive Japan in the West. For sure, for sure. I mean, it's a good, it's a good bridging book too. You could, you could use this book to go to pretty much any any book in Japan or America. It's like across <laughs> many cultures. It's a very efficient book to choose. It's quite the catch, you might say. Uh, I like uh, it. I like it. Hey, oh, we'll, we'll talk about what our next <laughs> book is coming up at the end of the show today. Looking forward to it. You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour discussing Naomi Hirahara's Sayonara Slam, chapters 11 to the end. We'll be back with more in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex here with you on the line. I am joined by Tony Arashiro from Eastlake Dojo over in the distant lands of California. Tony, I, uh, I gave you a mention earlier this episode, and it's good to have you Good to have you on with us to talk uh, about the sport, the culture of California that we've been exploring here as we discuss Naomi Hirahara's Sayonara Slam. Yes, yes. Thank you. Thank you for having me on today. I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> now, Tony, I, I've come in. You're you're a little uh, you're a little flustered and befuddled as to why this this strange Australian creature has summoned you from uh, from the depths of California to talk about this. But one of the exciting things for me is over here in Australia when I was growing up, uh, we had this thing called the Premier's Public Speaking Competition, where we'd we'd have to talk about you know uh, issues that maybe were beyond the realms of the young children we were back then. But one of the one of the topics that I remember coming up multiple times was sport breaking down the barriers and how sport is kind of this uh, useful tool for bridging communities and cultures and breaking down racial divides. And one thing that I find really interesting about the work you do at Eastlake Dojo is that you've brought over so directly this culture from Okinawa of the karate that you do. 
you know, what's it like bringing over uh, the culture of another place to somewhere like California and introducing it to the young people that you work with when you're coaching them? You know, how is that experience bringing not only the sport and the technique, but the culture along with it? So actually it is, it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, the, the part that I like the most about it is actually educating them because initially people think karate is a all encompassing martial art. Everything that has to do with fighting is all karate, you know, probably because of the karate kid. Mm -hmm. But, (laughs) um, but what we get to do is we actually get to specify what type of karate we're doing. And we we're able to tell them, Oh no, this is, you know, the origins of karate come from Japan, which come from Okinawa. And we get to, you know, explain different things. Why, uh, you know, this was called this. Uh, for example, you know, there's a stance. It's called uh, Soto Hachijidachi. And people, of course, like, oh, that's just a, you know, funny sounding name. It's like, well, no, it's, there's a reason they, they, they made that name for it. It's because of how it's, how your feet are positioned. It's writing a specific kanji with your feet. So that's why they named it that stance. Um, so just little things like that. And then, of course, I get to teach them some Japanese here and there, which, you know, parents love. Um, kids, you know, they they love being able to count one to ten in Japanese. To them, it's, you know, it's, it's awesome. Um, but, yeah, I think the biggest uh, the biggest thing for me is going to be the educational aspect. Just, you know, really teaching them about, honestly, my own culture as well. So. Yeah, I get to learn about it and then I get to teach them about it as well. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the interesting things that Sayonara Slam explores is having uh, our main character, Mazurai. He has this family who's grown up outside of experiences uh, that he's had over in Japan. So for you as someone who's grown up exclusively in America, but still, you know, embracing that culture and learning these traditions, you know, how does it how does it feel as a. Uh, as someone carrying on a culture that you've never directly been a part of, you know, where, was there a learning curve for you? Almost oh, definitely. Uh, you know, well, the thing is I'm only half Japanese or half Okinawan. My dad's from Okinawa and he came here. So uh, the biggest issue with that is cross culture. You know, of course I live here in America. So my first language was is English. Um, and then my dad was always working. So it was difficult for him to, help us embrace the, the Okinawan culture. Um, you know, we, we were part of this organization or that organization that's, that's centered around you know, Okinawa culture. But if you're not in it every day, if not fully embraced, it's, it's difficult. So for me, I'd say I definitely had a, a learning curve, you know, where you have uh, kids whose parents are both uh, either Japanese or Okinawan, uh, they you know they, f- they speak the language, they they know about the culture, they even go to Japanese schools. Whereas me, the only part that I had initially was karate. Mm. That was the only part of me that was like, oh, this is Japanese or this is Okinawan, you know, and this is part of who I am. You know, as I got older, I was able to experience different things uh, culture-wise, and I was able to go you know multiple times to Okinawa to visit and to, I mean, really get a full-blown culture dive. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of the other fun things about uh, particularly martial arts is that there's such a strong international community in terms of the competitions that go on and instructors coming from all around the world to teach at different schools. You know, so how does it work for you as a dojo getting people in from Okinawa, from Japan to teach your students? So for us, it's it's probably a little bit easier because of our style. It originates in Okinawa, and it's a much smaller style. So we we do have a connection. I mean, obviously, my dad being he was sent here specifically from Okinawa to teach karate. 
So that's 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 uh, you know many many years later. That's where I come in. Um, but we we do have that connection, the direct connection to Okinawa. Um, I think for other schools, you know, they, they definitely do have to pay a lot of money for to you know to have to fly out an instructor or you know a special guest or especially with a competition. There's you know a little bit different aspects between uh, karate in the competitive world and then your quote unquote traditional karate. You know, they do coincide with each other, but people will make a distinction between the two. Yeah, there's there's something kind of interestingly almost a little religious about, you know, setting out on a pilgrimage to go teach your martial arts style, especially for, you know, some of the more niche styles. Because I guess people who aren't familiar with the martial arts community think of karate as like just one collective style, but there are so many subdivisions that you don't often hear about. So how does it come about that? Uh, you know, masters, it's sensei is the term, I believe. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. So how is it that they go about finding places around the world to plant a dojo? And why is it that, um, you know, particularly for martial arts, there's such a, an emphasis on sharing the style and, you know, the teachings that you can bring with it? I, I would probably, I, I don't have the correct answer, <laughs> but my interpretation for that question is probably going to be that when, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, almost all martial arts did originate from China, and being that China is so, you know, as a country, it's you know, so old that that's kind of where the ancient of ancient, you know, martial arts would have uh, derived from. But our piece in Okinawa, and then what's been spread out just in throughout Japan, was there's various aspects of becoming a major style, which is like the ease of teaching. How can you like Shotokan, for example? It's a it's a much easier style to teach because it's a lot of big movements, and it was introduced in Japan to the masses, and it was easy to teach this style to the masses because you could see what the what the sensei was doing. Whereas when you come to other styles like Gojudo, which is still pretty popular now, but it's a lot harder to see what you're supposed to be executing as either a sensei or a student. But I, I think a lot of senseis decided that they wanted to leave their mark. And they, the best way to do it was to go away from where it was super popular, which was obviously Japan. So a lot of them traveled all over the world, you know, being foreigners and just decided I'm, I'm going to start karate and, you know, I'm, I'm going to teach it. Or uh, similarly in my dad's position, he was sent. Yeah. You know, it's very uh, a, a traditional – I mean it falls into like, you know, whether it be culture or tradition where if somebody who quote-unquote outranks you is, or is considered your senpai and they tell you, listen – I know you have a job lined up for you here in uh, Japan, but you're going to America because uh, I said so. <laughs> and you're just like, you really literally respond with os or, you know, hi, I understand. And, and you pack your things up and you're like, bye. <laughs> and, and so, so I think that is actually probably the biggest uh, reason why it expanded all throughout the world. I think tying that all the way back around at the beginning to kind of breaking down the barriers, I think that's one thing that's really fun, uh, particularly about that idea of sports breaking down those barriers is that there, there's so many other uses for the culture and the concepts that sports and particularly martial arts can bring. And that's why it's always so exciting, you know, looking at the the traditional and the more niche styles like the ones you work with, Tony. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that is awesome. Anyhow. Thank you so much for joining us here on Death of the Reader, Tony. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. If you want to find more about Eastlake Dojo, check out their online learning courses, which they've opened up this year over the course of the pandemic while they've been in lockdown. And we will have links up on the podcast for that. Oh, thank you for having me. I really had a good time. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex here. 
We are speaking about Naomi Hirohara's Sayonara Slam. We'll be back with that in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour. And it is time, Herds, for that post-mortem of the last few chapters, 11 to the end, or 12 to the end, rather, of Naomi Hirohara's Sayonara Slam, the sixth in the Mars Arai series. And we, we've gotten out all of the Mars Arai love that we can. Mm-hmm. We've said all of the nice oh, things no. we can say, Herds. It oh, is no. time to tear this mystery to shreds well that's just cruel of you that's oh this is the beginning of the end for masurai a sweet old man who's done nothing wrong and has only been good to us uh now it's time to talk about how nothing it's this foreshadowing Uh uh-huh flex it's missing i have (laughs) i have one thing i'd like to ask you herds what would you like to ask me when when you hear someone called sunny in a murder mystery book spelled s-u-n-n-y yeah. Do you think that is a nickname or do you think that is a regular name? I'm trying to, I, I guess I, it's his nickname, I guess. I don't know. Because because one of the defining pieces of evidence to prove that our culprit, Sonny Hirosei, is in fact the culprit, is that his name being Sonny is obviously a nickname and is a reference to his Japanese name, Hideaki, which means yeah, life. Yeah, so that's garbage. <laughs> that's the garbage Do you part. want to know where the first time the name Hideaki appears in this novel well, is, Herds? Do you cha- want to know the first time? Is it chapter 12? Uh, no, Ben. It's chapter 14. Oh, no. <laughs> it's about two pages before they confront him and he confesses. And... I, I think that whilst not a huge problem, because it's the kind of thing that's more like a <gasps> reveal for the last minute, and those are yeah, fine. It's just a name. I think that it is indicative of the problem that this mystery has, where we have spent so long, so long dealing with the Gripsholm and the Tea, these two prisoner of war vessels. We've spoken about the comfort women. We've spoken about Japanese Americans who were sent over for prisoner trades. We've spoken about Japanese prisoners of war in general. You know, we know, we know what the motivation surrounds. Yeah, we understand the historical context, right? But there is nothing, nothing in the first 13 chapters of this book that suggests to me that (laughs) there is anything murder-worthy. And you know what? There is nothing in the first 16 chapters of this 16-chapter book that suggests to me that there is anything murder-worthy surrounding the incidents that we speak of because the the most uh damaging things that we get to is that you know people's partners died while they were on the ship and it was a horrible experience and people still can't agree to be honest about what happened yeah look i feel you like we've got all this world war ii history and like war crimes and comfort women and political scandals and journalistic integrity in question or even even if itai was just lying if he was just making up a story about sunny's family that was really cruel to his legacy so then it's then it's more like tragic right yeah, yeah. but instead like, it is just the supposedly true story of his family and we find out that itai has retracted his submission to the publishers literally moments after finding out that it was sunny in the first place. That is, that does lend some like dramatic irony and tragedy to the scene, which I like, but in my opinion, it is too little too late. Yeah. I mean, even, 
even if Itai's retraction to the publisher had been just put like four chapters earlier, it would have massively changed the weight of that delivery because then we would have had the moment where we go, oh, okay, so there's a manuscript that he submitted and he's withdrawn it. Why has he withdrawn it? And it raises a whole bunch of questions. We could have had a scene with Sonny like maybe feeling guilty about the fact that he killed someone for no good reason. That would have been a cool scene, you know, and kind of exploring. It's more of this like sifting through information rather than it is like, here's a twist and here's a twist. Yeah, for sure. Because I think that um, one of the interesting things with this novel is that if you were to look down the list of, for example, Knox's rules, right? Mm. The, uh, the sixth rule and the eighth rule would be the ones that I immediately think, ah, you know, this is, this is the one that this story breaks. No. But it doesn't break the rules. Like, the, there is no accident that helps them find it. They just find a document uh, there are no clues that we don't get to see. They're put on screen in the moment they appear. It just, it's really weird how something that ostensibly plays by the rules manages to miss the mark by just pacing out the clues yep. in this strange way. Well, this is the thing. And it also plays into sort of how how I had to structure out the chapters because from chapter 12 onward, we basically like in chapter, I think it's 11, 12 and 13. We have basically a character scene with a a number of the suspects. And in each of those chapters, we essentially clear that suspect of, of suspicion. So trying to figure out like, where is the end point when you're supposed to solve the mystery is a little bit tricky in that respect. Cause there, there isn't like, there isn't a lot of mystery here. And as I, in my mind, at least as soon as you get to chapter 12, which is, this is Armika's secret. She is no longer on the table as a suspect. Then like, who else do you suspect? You know, Mm -hmm. who else do we even care about? There isn't really a a traditional suspect lineup at all. If anything, I think the question that this raises for me is if we have a whodunit that doesn't ask for the why done it, what are the consequences of that? And I think that this novel kind of shows it really interesting where I think a lot of people, myself included some years ago, would come into a mystery novel and just be like, this is who it was and this is how it was done. And the why doesn't matter because it's obviously them. And I put my sunglasses on and I walk out of the room. You beat the puzzle. Congratulations. (laughs) You defeated a child in a chess match. We're done. Exactly. But this novel does a really good job uh, through a mistake, admittedly, of showing, (laughs) well- I mean, a mistake is a mistake is a strong Keep word. an error, a miss, a through, misstep through something I uh, dislike. Uh, what is? Oh my goodness, my baseball terminology is failing me. A ball through a ball. <laughs> uh, I don't know that, that really works here, but you know. shows shows how a mystery story does still need something to make it more than just a puzzle. Uh, because it it does have a great story on the surface, but it feels as though the puzzle and the story are two separate things because there is a lack of credibility by the way the finale of the mystery is carrying out. Look, I I think what you're trying to say is that we should take the who, the how, and the why, and we should arrange them in terms of first, second, and, and third base, and we should live by the old adage, which is that I don't want none unless... You score runs, hun. Let now listen, herds. <laughs> it's time to talk about what we're doing next week. Uh, so I was planning on making our stellar return to Japan with the Mystery Writers of Japan, which is a society that Erogawa Rambo himself founded and uh, was the second iteration of it. It was originally the Detective Fiction Writers Club of Japan. Oh my God, that's a mouthful. And I was going to go with the second president of the latter club, Seicho Matsumoto. 
whose book Points and Lines is one of the highest selling crime fiction stories of all time in Japan. Oh my goodness. It, that must be really easy to get a hold of. Well, Herds, you've given it's away the game so well. here, which is to say <laughs> that I have spent about two months trying to get a copy of this book and have not succeeded. So, Herds, uh, in in the hope that the next copy of the book that I have ordered off the internet arrives with Oops, all sorry. of its pages. What? What, you, what does that mean? <laughs> it's are these going to be missing pages? I had a bit, there was a bit of a, a bit of a snafu with the last oh, delivery I received, no. Herds, we'll say. That doesn't sound good. But should that book arrive intact, that is the book that you are going to be giving oh, okay. me. You know, I'm okay with that. That means I don't have to hunt for a book for a little while. That's good. I'm okay with that. But to, to fill the gap, we are going to go with uh, the second most recent president of the Mystery Writers of Japan, Keigo Higashino. And the devotion of Suspect X. That sounds like a manga. That's what that sounds like. It is a much more thriller-driven story. Okay. The front title compares it to Stieg Larsson of Girl with the Dragon Tattoo fame. So we will we will see about that. Is this even going to be a mystery? What is this? It well, it should be a mystery, Herds. We're in for a bit of a weird time, but I don't think it's going to be quite the uh, detective based game we're used to on the show. Either way, we will be covering a story. But either way, we will be covering chapters one to seven of that on the show next week. And Herds, I wish you the best of luck with this story. Um, I Because I only decided to switch to it, I have to read the entire thing in the next couple of days. So Sorry. you're right there with me. I'm, I'm sure it'll be a, a home run. <laughs> I'm sure you'll hit it out of the park. All right, I'm done. I'm done with these punts. It's too many. That's of the them. second time you've delivered that one, I think, Herd. So we're, we're really we've run is. out with run dry. I'm running out already. There aren't that many baseball puns. If you have a baseball pun, let me know at Flex at Herds, at Flex and Herds, even. <laughs> let me know your favorite baseball pun right now. Tweet at us or Facebook us. Let us know. You are listening to Death of the Reader. <laughs> we are Flex and Herds. We will see you next week with the devotion of Suspect X. Thank you very much for joining us, and we will see you then. 